0: Hey YA! From great new books to favorite classic reads, from new stories to updates on the latest in on-screen adaptations, Hey YA is a bi-weekly podcast here to elevate the exciting world of young adult lit. Hey YA is a book riot podcast hosted by me, Kelly Jensen, and Eric Smith. We are recording on Thursday, January 4th, 2017. Except it's 2018. I don't know why I wrote 2017. (laughs) Probably for the same reason that despite knowing this introduction, I like... (laughs) tripped over my words twice. Uh, <laughs> Hi, how are you doing? Oh,
1: hello, Kelly. <laughs> it's the it's the new year. We made it.
0: We did make it. It feels so, here. like, bright and fresh and full of hope and energy. Um, oh. Or at least that's what I'm telling myself.
1: Yes. So what's, so what's going are you,
0: on? What are you, oh, I was going to say, what are you reading?
1: Oh, what am I reading? Okay, well, What are you
0: reading, yes.
1: Uh, so I got sent a copy of Heart of Ash by Kim Lidget. It's the... Sequel to her book, Blood and Salt. Um, I think I talked about this in a, in a past episode. Um, but she writes the sort of why horror I wish I saw more of in bookstores. Um, it's like really unnerving and creepy and just the right amount of like shocking scares that are uh, more about the situation than the actual gore of everything that's going mm-hmm. on. Um, so her first book, it's, it's like this Romeo and Juliet meets Children of the Corn kind of story where it's this uh, teen girl and her younger brother follow her like spiritual, maybe she's in a cult, I'm, you're not sure what's going on, uh, mother, when she disappears from her home, uh, and they discover that she's gone to this town that's kind of frozen in time and hidden by a magic cornfield. Uh, and as she, you know, enters the town and, and, and goes through this, this corn, um, she kind of discovers she might be the sacrifice the town needs to stay immortal. Uh, so there's all this really cool stuff going on with cults and uh, little bits of history, and it's just it's super upsetting and, and creepy and yeah, there's a sequel. So I, I hope the sequel doesn't spoil it for everybody that, you know, maybe the main character is not dead because there's a sequel. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's really exciting. It comes out in February. and I'm already halfway through it. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, sometimes we end up talking about books that aren't quite out yet when we talk about what we're reading, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. because of the nature of you know having this podcast and being book people um so luckily you guys can go get the first book Blood and Salt cuz it's been out for about 2 years now and that's uh, I still
0: need to read that first book
1: it's I got good. a copy
0: of it when it first came out and I remember the pitch the um the pitch of being Romeo and Juliet meets children of the corn was like so appealing to me and then I never got to it but oh, I great. could solve that you know and it's nice yeah. I could solve that before the sequel comes out
1: Yes. what about you what's on your uh, to be read or in the middle of list.
0: (laughs) So I just finished an adult nonfiction title. Um, I'm going to tie this into why in just a second. But it's (laughs) called (laughs) The New Wild West by Blair. I think it's Briody. And it's about how the town of Williston, North Dakota, sort of turned into this oil boom town at the same time that the U.S. was going through one of the greatest recessions that we've experienced. Hmm. And I picked this up because... I'd been to Williston before, and I was there in, I think it was 2006, so a couple years before the big explosion happened there, and and the population grew, and um, so I was super curious to see, like, her take on the story, and, like, how this town went from, you know, just a small North Dakota town in the middle of nowhere, but yet was, like, the central hub of everything in pretty much all of eastern Montana and western North Dakota where there's nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being large town, I mean, like, they had a Walmart and an Applebee's. So, yeah. you know, big culture. <laughs> um, how it went from that to being this place where, like, people couldn't find any pl- any place to live. Like, rent skyrocketed, tripled, quadrupled um, because oil was found and new technologies for fracking came through. So, um, you know, if you like nonfiction, it's interesting, but, um, Why I'm talking about it is it really reminded me, like, how much I am craving a YA book to be set in North Dakota like that. And sort of, I I was just thinking, like, how interesting would it be to be a teen who grew up there, and all you've ever known is this, like, oil town madness, and this town that's primarily all men, because that's who's working the the fields, Um, and how do you, like if you've grown up there your whole life, how do you sort of reconcile that difference of, you know, a small town, like what you grew up with North Dakota versus like suddenly being this big area with all this new growth and population and change, like how, man, I just, there's so much there for a great contemporary YA novel. Yeah, I know,
1: absolutely. It makes me wonder, like, what would it be like to have like a YA novel about like, a teen growing up in, like, Silicon Valley when all of that exploded, mm-hmm. you know? like Yeah. Man. I hope you what writers you are of, listening. <laughs>
0: I know, right? It's like these these moments, there's so much that you can really dig into, and there's so much good nonfiction about it, but anybody who's inspired enough to write can, like, get a good sense of what it's like from the adult perspective. But, like, what about the teen perspective, you know? Yeah. Um When you're a teen and, like, trying to figure yourself out at the same time that, like, the place you're growing up in is also trying to figure itself out, like, that's, ooh, there's so much, like, juicy stuff there to be mined. So, yeah, I just, I finished that this morning, and, um, the next one on my pile is Amy Spaulding's The Summer of Jordy Perez, which you talked about last week on the podcast. Yay! Yeah, we're big Amy Spaulding fans, so I'm really excited about that. Um... A quick note before we sort of dive into the meat of our podcast today, I finally got around to setting up a book drive for The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas to the kids in Katy, Texas. We had talked about on episode, I think it's episode 7, that the Katy school board had pulled the books from school shelves, and I'd seen a lot of people talking online about wanting to do something, and... From everything that I've looked at, nothing came to fruition, like a, a, a large book drive didn't come to be. So um, starting on the 15th, so a couple days before this podcast hits, there'll be a big book drive to get books to the kids down there. Um, all the information about how you can help and take part, I will link in the show notes. Super easy. I've got some really cool people down in Katy and in the Houston area who are going to deliver donated books to all the little free libraries in Katy um, to get books out there for these kids to take, um, so it should be should be good. And
1: um, Yay. more importantly, so yeah, awesome.
0: the kids will get the books, and not only get them but like get to keep them. And um, you know that to me is one of those like the school can take it off the shelves, but you can't keep it from the kids' hands. You it's know? true. <laughs> um. So yeah, that that'll be linked in the show notes if anybody wants to help out. And then also, I need to just brag that Eric and I get to hang out next week yay yeah by the time you're listening to this in your earbuds we'll have already um seen each other and hung out and talked books yeah and taking
1: some fan taking some fancy podcast photos
0: (laughs) right yeah so that's something for everybody who's listening to look forward to they can see us in our like goofy natural um bookish element like but but out in public which is (laughs) you know like we'll be wearing pants and like Decent clothes, rather than our, you know, work-from-home apparel, which is a little different. Just a little. (laughs) Um, So I'll go ahead and kick off our first sponsor before we hop into our first big topic, and our sponsor is The Cruel Prince by Holly Black, by number one New York Times bestselling author Holly Black, the first in a stunning new series about a mortal girl who finds herself caught in a web of royal fairy intrigue, and this is a quote, quote- of course I want to be like them. They're beautiful as blades forged in some divine fire. They will live forever. And Carden is even more beautiful than the rest. I hate him more than all the others. I hate him so much that sometimes when I look at him, I can hardly breathe. End quote. That's from the book, very obviously. Jude was seven years old when her parents were murdered, and she and her two sisters were stolen away to live in the treacherous high court of fairy. Ten years later, Jude wants nothing more than than to belong there despite her mortality but many of the fae despise humans especially prince cardan the youngest and wickedest son of the high king to win a place on the court she must defy him and face the consequences in doing so she becomes embroiled in palace intrigues and deceptions discovering her own capacity for bloodshed as but a civil war threatens to drown the court of fairy in violence jude will need to risk her life in a dangerous alliance to save her sisters And fairy itself, and that's our sponsor number one, *Cruel Prince* by Holly Black, which I've heard nothing but great things about in like every review I've read of it.
1: Yeah, I haven't picked it up yet. I it is definitely in my, uh, you know, to be picked up. Yeah, (laughs) same, same. Yeah,
0: I'm not usually a a fantasy fan, but this sounds like something I could totally get into.
1: Yes, and it's Holly Black.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So, um, hey, Eric. This is the part mm. where you say, hey.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, Kelly.
0: <laughs> Did you know that The Hunger Games is 10 years old? No! You're old.
1: You cannot say that out loud.
0: Uh, it's 10 years old. Uh, I need oh to my break God. it to you and to everybody listening to this. It is 10 where,
1: years old. Where does the time go? Where, where? Hunger
0: Games is almost old enough to read YA books.
1: Oh, God. <laughs>
0: I mean, and, and, and maybe knowing The Hunger Games, maybe it's already, like, at the YA reading stage. Um, anyway, I share that because it got me to thinking, and I, I, I always love thinking about this, books that were sort of either big when they first hit or books that were really good when they hit um, shelves and yet sort of got forgotten because of time. And
1: mm-hmm. just,
0: especially in the YA world, I feel like books sort of lose their... Mem- not memorability, but um, lose sort of the buzz around them pretty quickly. So we thought we would talk about some of the books that came out in 2008, a.k.a. The Hunger Games is 10 years old. So um, do you want to start?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, my first book that I want to talk about that came out in 2008, which also might make some people feel a little bit old, is Paper Towns by John Green. Uh, Kelly, you knew I was going to end up picking the John I Green knew.
0: Book. I knew, I uh,
1: knew. Yeah, so it's a road trip novel. Uh, teen named Margot seeks vengeance on people who made her life not so great, uh, enlisting to the help of a teen named Quentin. Only she disappears, leaving clues for Quentin to sort of navigate. Um, you know, it's very voicey. It's has some literary references. It's very John Green esque. You know, if you've read <laughs> uh, his his later books like *The Fault in Our Stars* or *Turtles All the Way Down*, it's 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 nothing you haven't already seen uh, from him. Um, I have not seen the movie though um I heard it was not so great. did you see it was it was it in your uh
0: I did not ne- see it Netflix I read the book Q. um no, I didn't see it, but I read the book when it came out That was one that i mean it was it was two thousand and eight I was still in library school or did I graduate close to graduation? I can't remember, and that was one that I picked up and used as a way to get through grad school (laughs) (laughs) um but no what about
1: you what's what's in your uh i don't know you think of fondly when you think about 2008 ya books
0: (laughs) so this one this one is um uh timely and timeless and it's after tupac and d foster by jacqueline woodson who, um, as of today, was just named the National Ambassador for Children's Literature. So, yay! I mean, that's like a great honor, and she's the perfect person to be in that position. Um, But the book, After Tupac and Dee Foster, was a Prince Honor book. So it got a lot of accolades and attention when it came out. And um, it's about two girls who live in a safe Queens neighborhood, and they meet this other girl named Dee Foster, who's been a child of a really different and unstable life. The three girls form this bond that sort of is married around the music of Tupac and sort of D. Foster's life mirrors what Tupac's singing about um, in a way that the other two girls don't quite understand, but, you know, like they still enjoy the music and this is their big way to bond. But yeah. Foster's mom comes back into the picture and suddenly all three of the girls, their lives change and it changes even more when Tupac dies. Um, which happens during the course of the story. It's a book about music and friendship and sort of the range of urban life experiences, and it's in this super tiny little book. Um, Like, Woodson has this power to take these big stories and yet make them so short and so tight and so compact um, that I think a lot of readers who enjoyed her brown girl dreaming, which I think was maybe her big breakout most popular book most well-known book um would do really well going back and reading that one
1: yeah no that sounds great I'm, i i have not read that one i'm going to have to pick that up um let's see what What's do i have next, next, next on yeah. my little list oh so a curse as dark as gold by elizabeth bunce um i think this oh shoot what did this what did this get nominated for? i think it was this one Yes. Yeah, so it was a Morse Award, uh, book, and it's, uh, about a teen girl's family mill that has this curse on it, uh, and this mysterious guy named Jack Spinner appears. Spinner is the, uh, the key last name in this, uh, <laughs> this book here. Um, say so he, can, he can weave straw into gold. Uh, surprise! It is a Rumpelstiltskin retelling. Um, <laughs> and one of the reasons I, I, I brought this up when I was looking at books that came out ten years ago is that, like, when I think about, like, YA retellings, um, I don't know. Were they as huge ten years ago as they are right now? I feel like they're they're having like a major moment now.
0: I think they are having a movement. uh, Excuse me, a moment. But I think that they were quite big back then too. But they were less in the form of like standalone or um, series by authors who were fairly well known, and were instead sort of parts of different. Like I don't want to say commissioned, but. like, imprint series. So Simon and Schuster, I believe, had a whole series of um, YA retellings, and I can't remember the name of it, but um, just, like, about any fairy tale you can imagine, had uh, a retelling, and they're just these, like, slender little paperback original titles that um, circulated like crazy when I worked in the library, but I never see anybody talk about them now. Um,
1: Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. I think that those retellings sort of come and go in waves. You know, like, They become really popular for a while, and then you just see a couple. And then they become really popular for a while, and then you just see a couple.
1: Ah, the trends of publishing. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. But this is one... Did this one, am I remembering correctly, did this have a sequel to it?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I think it was a standalone one.
0: Standalone. Maybe I'm just thinking maybe she had a couple other books afterwards. That. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just making it all up. Could very well be the case.
1: Oh, she had that Star-Crossed series.
0: Yes, that's what I'm thinking of. Thank you. Yeah, and I think think there are two books in that one. Yeah. So, my next one from 2008 is The Disreputable History of Frankie Landau Banks by E. Lockhart. I was just talking with somebody recently about um, Swiss Army YA recommendations. So, the sorts of books that you can recommend to about any reader... And this is one of the titles that popped up, and I agree. And I will forever say that this is still E. Lockhart's best and totally most underrated um, book. It follows Frankie, who's told she can't be part of her boyfriend's all-male secret society. And Frankie is not taking no for an answer. So she uses her smarts and her wits to break into their secret society and find what the heck it's all about. Um, It's a mystery, and it's set at a boarding school, and it's got one of those, like, Strong female characters without being a strong female character, if you will. But, like, Frankie is such a memorable, well-written, witty, smart, like, tricky little character um, who has, you know, ten years later still stuck with me. Um, And I I hope that any reader who likes really compelling female characters and likes a good feminist bent YA novel will pick up The Disreputable History of Frankie Landau Banks by E. Lockhart. Hmm.
1: Let me see. What is next on my my little list here? Um, ten years. Ten years. Oh, so "Little Brother" by Cory Doctorow uh, came out ten years ago, um, which kind of blows my mind because I feel like I didn't mm-hmm. really get into Cory Doctorow's books uh, until a, you know slightly later in my reading life. Um, and in "Little Brother," we have a teen hacker that gets swept up uh, by the government after a terrorist attack, and one of his friends goes missing, and uh, all of that. The uh, sort of world around him gets very police state-esque after he's released from prison and he has to, you know, rally with all his friends to try to uh, fix everything that's going on. Um, Like, just, you know, sort of how I said Paper Towns is very John Green, uh, Little Brother is very Cory Doctorow, where there's lots of stuff that the government is doing with technology and the internet and, you know, things are, you know, there's... There's a message in all of it. That's what all, most, almost all of Cory Doctorow's books uh, have. That sort of message about, you know, freedom of the internet and you know, staying safe from, uh, uh, what, what was the uh, term? Keeping your, keeping your privacy, basically, or privacy rights. And uh, yeah, it's it's, it's one of those reads that makes you want to stand up and. I don't know, do something, (laughs) especially, uh, especially now with the, uh, with net neutrality and everything that's going on, uh, his books sort of have even, I don't know, even more meaning to them, uh, right now. And I think there, there's a sequel out there. Uh, this one has the white cover. There's the other one, um, little brother and, oh no, why is it escaping (laughs) me? It has the, it has the black cover. Oh, well, there's a sequel and it's, uh. Is it For the Win, or is that another standalone book of his?
0: That I don't know, but I know For the Win is not one of his books. Homeland!
1: Homeland. There that's you the go. That's the second book. There it is. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's uh, one of his earlier YAs and, and totally worth uh, checking out.
0: So when that one came out, I guess a couple years after that one came out, there was a stage production of it done in no. Chicago. And I went and saw it, and it was really good. Um, it was wow. just very cool like taking that story and putting it on you know, like a stage, which is, again, a totally different medium than, like, watching an adaptation of it on the, either for television or a movie, and um, it was very cool. I took a bunch of my friends with me who weren't YA readers and were totally sucked into the story because it's such a, it's a techno-thriller, essentially. Um, Yeah. And, yeah, um, I'm so curious, like, how it holds up now or if it even has, like, maybe more weight now than it did when it came out.
1: Yeah, I mean. Yes, it might.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of those that like is worth a reread, I think, for anybody who hasn't picked it up. And worth a first read for anyone who hasn't already enjoyed it. Um, my next one is one of those books that was totally overlooked when it came out. And I never hear anybody talk about it now. And it's called Ten Cents of Dance by Christine Fletcher. It's probably one of my all-time favorite YA's. It's yeah. set in the 1940s in Chicago in the Back of the Yards neighborhood, which, if anybody knows anything about Chicago, that's a that's a rougher neighborhood, um, Back of the Yards being the um, Stockyards. So Ruby has grown up there, and she knows that she um, she's responsible for keeping her family afloat financially. But the challenge is Ruby is Polish-American, and again, that's uh, part of Chicago's cultural heritage that anybody reading the book will get a really good sense of with the book and anybody who grew up in the Chicago area will just sort of understand what that, what that means for the position she's in. Um, Mm. but Ruby discovers that the one way she can become employed is by becoming a taxi dancer, which is a way to make money by sort of entertaining men and to earn her keep and to really sort of Keep her position and to earn more money she has to begin to sort of fish her male patrons so find ways to to get meals out of them to get money out of them to get clothes from them to get jewelry from them but this job that she has is so risky and she has to keep so many secrets from her family that she knows it won't last long um so it's really about falling into this moment of time in history but also following ruby realizing that this is not sustainable, and then she has to figure something else out. Um, it's evocative and atmospheric, and it's one of those books that needed more readers 10 years ago and deserves mm-hmm. more readers today. Um, just awesome. Ten Cents a Dance by Christine Fletcher is that one.
1: That sounds great. Yeah, no, I haven't heard of that one. Um and now I think I'm going to talk about one that everyone has heard of, um, but I haven't read, and I feel like I'm going to get sent to, like, YA book jail. Um, so it's it's Lament by Maggie honor It's her her, her debut. Um, I haven't read this series. Uh, and I, you, you left this really interesting note in here about the series changing publishers?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it started, it was um, with Flux. It was one of their first books, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Um, and then, I can't remember what year, it went over to Scholastic, Scholastic got it, and that's why you can still find it in bookstores today, is they bought the rights and read. The package, I believe, is the same, if not just super similar. Um,
1: With that, like, so dagger?
0: It, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just one of those, like, little nerdy publishing history things <laughs>
1: that I was like, <laughs>
0: like, that's so cool to sort of, like, know and see that they kept that book alive and going as her career is sort of taken off.
1: Yeah, enjoy that little insider baseball uh, <laughs> right. insider baseball blip right there. But yeah, that book is ten years old, and I, I just love that a lot of these authors that we're bringing up have sort of had these, I don't know, like, skyrocketed careers uh, after these first books, um, and the ones that haven't, well, I encourage you to pick those books up so they can, uh, you know, go on and have these sort of careers, because more people that buy the books, the more that helps.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I'm nodding my head over here, which literally nobody can see because my my next pick is by Robin Benway, who, oh,
1: as you know, example.
0: just won the National Book Award for um, "Far from the Tree" this year. And Eric, if you haven't read this book, I'm going to talk about, you need to you need to read it. It's Audrey. Oh, White. I have.
1: I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I was
0: going to say I would be surprised if you haven't, but it's Audrey Wait by Robin Benway, and I think that was one of the first YA novels that I read um, when I started working in a library and. It follows a girl named Audrey who, after the breakup with her musician boyfriend, discovers that she's the girl of the hit song his band has written. And so now mm. Audrey is famous, she's being stalked by paparazzi, and all she wants is her normal, boring life back. And anytime <laughs> I think about this book, I'm just like, the premise is so brilliant. Like, that is a brilliant premise. And the book itself is well written and enjoyable and um, totally different from Far From the Tree. And I think oh, yeah. it really shows sort of the like wide range of um, ability and capability that Benway has as a writer, and just sort of how much her voice has grown and developed in ten years. Um, if I remember correctly, this is her first book or one of her first books, if not her debut. Um, and that.
1: It makes me think of that song. Which song? It makes me think of that song. So the uh, that plain white Tea song, the Hey There Delilah oh, song. Yeah totally think of that song. Like, what is it like to be Delilah? Well, this is probably what it's like to be Delilah.
0: Right? Right? Like, totally awful for Delilah. <laughs> totally awful for Audrey. But that's, um, Audrey Wait by Robin Benway. And did you want to add any other titles? I think both of us just, like, wrote this massive list.
1: Yeah, well, I had one note that, uh... So, like, when I was looking up YA from 2008, uh, The Host by Stephanie Meyer kept coming up. Um... Which I thought was super weird, because did, did that book cross over into YA? Did readers pick it up by accident? Because, like, that's an adult book, right?
0: <laughs> so, like, so yeah. ex- it is. And and my experience with this particular book is that um, a lot of readers who were picking up Twilight, who were teens, were also picking up um, The Host. Because the the second book, Breaking Dawn, came out that same year. Um, so 2008 it came out. And um, I think a lot of readers who were, like, super sucked into the Twilight series went and picked this one up, too, to sort of, like, continue reading everything that yeah. Meyer had written. Um, one of the libraries, I, so I worked at a library that had two branches, and the one branch we could have multiple copies of anything, like it was big enough. But the smaller branch, we couldn't have a whole lot of multiple copies. But for the host, I remember we had two, and we put one in YA and one in adult, because so many YA readers were looking for it in YA. We were like, well make sense to put it there if that's where they're looking for it um, so yeah I think that that's one of those titles that did crossover quite a bit um, I haven't read it so I can't tell you like if it's really a crossover or not
1: yeah that's so interesting
0: um, and I'll round this out with just a couple more by a couple I mean more than a couple um, titles <laughs> that came out in, 2000, I know, in 2008 that are worth looking at, at if you haven't um, Matt de la Pena's Mexican White Boy came out like I mentioned before, Breaking Dawn by Stephanie Meyer came out. Kristen Kishore's Graceling came out, and that was oh. the first in a trilogy. Um, Living Dead Girl by Elizabeth Scott, um, and that one has been challenged left and right everywhere. Um, it needs all kinds of trigger warnings for sexual assault and abuse. But um, interestingly, it is not the Elizabeth Scott book that I personally dealt with um, a challenge for in the library. That was a totally different book and for a totally stupid reason. Um But (laughs) Living Dead Girls, probably Elizabeth Scott's most um, well-known title and one that when it came out was really, um, it was sort of in line with what Ellen Hopkins has been writing and continues to write that sort of really dark, hard um, YA fiction that took a lot of readers by surprise that they weren't anticipating that sort of like level of darkness and despair (laughs) in their books. (laughs) And I laugh because like now it's not anything that is surprising, you know, but Even 10 years ago, it was was a big deal. It was a really big deal. Yeah. So we hope you enjoyed this trip down memory lane and that you're reminded that you're old. Because I feel old.
1: (laughs) So let's get into that second sponsor that we have. Um, So our second sponsor today is Owlcrate. Uh, So Owlcrate is a monthly subscription box service for bookworms. Uh, Every month they send out a newly released young adult novel as well as a whole bunch of fun bookish goodies to go along with the book. Uh, There's a different unique theme every month. So lots of items in the boxes are handmade from small businesses, likely Etsy sellers, uh, and most of them are exclusive. You can't find the goodies anywhere else. Uh, Owlcrate's begun sending out books with exclusive cover designs, making them even more special. Um, They've also recently launched a brand new box for kids called Owlcrate Junior. It's pretty similar to the uh, Owlcrate concept, except the books are tailored uh, to boys and girls ages 8 to 12. Um, and at least three out of the five goodies, including Owlcrate Jr. is a usable activity to encourage creativity, imagination, uh, and exploration. Uh, so yes, Owlcrates. Uh, and I'm a big fan of the, uh, books that they end up sort of revamping and and doing new things with. Sometimes they, like, dye the pages different colors. Ooh, Uh, I love that. I know, right? I am such a sucker for that. Like, (laughs) like how Lee Bardugo's book, the, that Six of Crows, the black, Mm -mm, uh, pages there. Like, like, yes. Yes, I love that. They look so cool on the bookshelves.
0: That is really cool.
1: Yeah, so we were talking about uh, books that came out ten years ago. Uh, and one interesting thing that you'll notice from books that are a little bit older is that sometimes the covers aren't as... I don't know, I don't want to say they're at, they aren't they are as, like, arresting or gripping, but, you know, they they, they, they weren't as important. Yeah, they're different. They're different, that's all. Yeah, So yeah, and,
0: uh, and I, I wouldn't even say so much that they weren't arresting or... Um, Interesting, but a lot of them were um, very similar to other ones. So, yeah, you saw a lot of hands holding things after you saw Twilight, and it was like, hmm, what are they going for there? Um, (laughs) Or a lot of books that suddenly had like this image on them that stood for something really important in this dystopian world. Um, Mm -hmm. You think about the Hunger Games and what that looked like. And um, so, obviously, we decided we're going to talk about covers because. (laughs) Because it's our podcast, yeah, and we're going to. <laughs> yeah,
1: so it's interesting that you brought up like the, the, the twilight hands and the uh, dystopian images, because sometimes you see that sort of trend pop up over the course of a handful of books, and uh, I think we'll, we'll we'll chat about that a little bit more.
0: hmm So I guess the first question, I'm just going to throw this out there, and you can kind of give me your insight. Uh, as a reader and maybe also as a professional, but what do you think makes a book cover work, especially for YA readers? Like why did John Green's *The Fault in Our Stars* begin a trend of really font-driven covers? Why do you think *Rainbow Rolls*, *Eleanor and Park* began a trend for the illustrated covers? What do you think?
1: Like why why do they end up looking the way that they do?
0: Yeah, like yeah. what what is it that makes a cover work, and then why is it that some covers sort of become this um, starting point for a trend that then you know, expands outward to other? other covers um and not necessarily that they're the same but they're like big trendy things so like font-driven titles um sorry font-driven covers um in YA which have been everywhere the last few years same with illustrate like illustrated covers that clearly are done by somebody in-house or somebody who's hired um who works in illustration to design something that's sort of iconic um relating to that book any
1: thoughts man (laughs) <laughs> I feel bad because I really don't even know, like, how does it, how does it, uh, I don't know how those decisions are, are necessarily made that they end up, uh, sparking that sort of thing. Like, is it a collaboration between the publisher and the author? Like, does the author come up with some of these, uh, these sort of things? I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel trapped.
0: well how about how about we go like this what so you've you've written and published a couple books what was the cover experience like for you how much input did you have um what was sort of the relationship between you and the editors and publishers when they sent you a a concept
1: see i feel like i'm the worst person when it comes to my own writing and (laughs) and the books and stuff uh because i'm very much the uh oh it looks pretty great and then i'm i'm kind of done like i'm i'm the uh I'm a really great advocate for my writers in my career, but for myself I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Do you like
0: your book covers? I guess I do. good. Okay.
1: <laughs> I do. I think I've been, I think I've been very lucky.
0: <laughs> um it's funny you say that because I'll I'll be honest and say that when I got the cover for Here We Are, I was like it's perfect. Good. Um yeah. and they sent me some tweaks back and forth and it was like Sure, looks great. Um, one, like I trust that they know what they're doing, and two, um, I have no idea like <laughs> what kind of cover could be effective for my book, my own book. Like I feel like I'm too attached to the words of the book to think about what the packaging of the book is going to look like. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so when I see like how it's rendered and it's like striking to me, then that's good enough. Um, Because I assume that they know what
1: they're doing, right? Yeah. Like, I do know some of the conversations that happen behind the scenes in publishing when it comes to these covers. Like, it is, there is the conversation that happens, you know, is this something that people are going to want to talk about? Are they going to want to share it? You know, is this book going to get passed around a lot between, uh, between these teenagers because they, you know, not just because they think the words are great, but because it's pretty, because it's an object that they want to own, that they want to have. Um, and the other one that's sort of a, what was that?
0: Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I think say, you might say what I'm going to say. Go ahead.
1: Well, yeah, and like one that's like a terribly boring practical thing is how's the cover going to look when it's shrunken down that's exactly on what a website?
0: website. <laughs> yeah, what's it going to look like as a thumbnail? Is it going to look good as a thumbnail? Like it's yeah. so stupidly practical and yet it's so important because just by the way that we live our lives, we're on screen so much that, yeah. you know, if it if it doesn't look good on a screen, like it doesn't... <sighs> it doesn't pass the test sometimes. <laughs> yeah.
1: Or in a catalog, you know, or on a yeah. flyer mm-hmm. when the books get really small. Um, and I think that is sometimes why you see a lot of these books having like these, just these single, you know, bold images and and big chunky fonts uh, so they can, they can still be seen and still look, uh, I guess, you know, iconic when they're really little.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really good insight. I've never thought of that, but that makes perfect sense. So I'm thinking about, um, yeah, Robert Cormier's The Chocolate War, which is a classic. It's been around for decades, right? Um, And that one has seen many, many cover redesigns. And um, if anyone's interested, I can post a link in the show notes with a bunch of the um, images of this cover. But the most recent one, if I'm remembering correctly, was primarily a big desk on it and the title. Um, And, like, that's so different than what the other covers have looked like. But in thinking about that book's history, it wasn't until this more recent cover that there was any worry about what it looked like on a little screen, um, you know, and that's a really good insight. I'm going to, I'm going to chew on that one for a little bit.
1: Yeah. I should have said that first. Yes. <laughs> that, that works.
0: <laughs> um, I think too, that there's, it, it's worth mentioning that the big bookseller that still exists in the, in the big United States land. Um, I won't name what bookseller it is, but everybody knows what it is. Um, brick and mortar. I think they have a lot of say in the covers as well. Um, If they don't like something, if their buyer doesn't like something, then chances are that cover is going to get changed. Or maybe if it doesn't get changed, it might not get picked up for sitting on store shelves, which that's unfortunate. Like That's so unfortunate all around. But that gets me thinking, too, um, why we see covers that sort of... They aren't the same, but I'm imagining... In the next couple of years, we'll see a lot of covers that look, that, look, that look like they you get mm. that have just like one illustrated person of color on them or a couple illustrated people of color on it, which is great. Like we need to see more of that. But it will be interesting to see if um, future book covers play off the su- success of that, which we'd all been talking about for how long, right? Yeah. Um, and to finally see it happen, it's like, okay, now is this bookseller <laughs> going to listen to um, – what readers have been saying about wanting this for years and years and years. And
1: um, yeah, that
0: <laughs> there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Um, so I guess I'll ask an easier question then since my hard question was too hard. What kind of book covers do you like that are coming out in the next year?
1: Oh man. So, uh, so the kind of book covers that like really win me over, they, they sort of do one of two things. Like I really like covers that are super minimalistic where uh, maybe just an mm-hmm. object or, and some hard typeface like we talked about. Um, or I really like incredibly over-the-top covers with badass-looking protagonists on the front and space battles and visuals. Um, like, the best <laughs> way to sort of explain it is that, like, I kind of like my book covers to look like um, movie posters. You know, they're they're either simple enough to make me ask questions um, or they're complex enough that I know I'm going to have a good time with whatever it is I'm about to, you know, engage in, like, like when I see like a sci-fi movie poster that's over the top and ridiculous, like I know I'm going to laugh and clap my hands because there's explosions <laughs> you know, like that's like that's how I want to feel when I'm you know, picking up a good, uh, you know, a good YA sci-fi novel that this is this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, mm-hmm. So a few that are coming up really, uh, you know, really soon um, is uh, there's The Bells by Danielle Clayton, uh, where we have this really, mm-hmm. really kick ass looking girl in the front with all the, the beautiful colors and imagery around her. Um,
0: in a fancy dress, yes, like a throwback to, you know, that cover trend from five or six years ago where everybody got sick of that. But seeing it on this cover is so refreshing and so different and like super appealing. Yes.
1: And you all should Google about it because there's a really neat, uh, making of the cover, uh, sort of feature you can look up. Um, dread.
0: Oh, I can try, I can try and find it and link it in the show. Oh, great. Perfect. So people don't even have to Google. They can just click over.
1: Ah, uh, Dread Nation by Justina Ireland. I swear I got chills when I saw that uh, cover with the the girl on the front and the flag and the the little, just the little typeface that says Rise Up on it. Oh, my goodness. Um, what else? Oh, Hull Metal Girls by Emily Script. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel like there's a lot of people talking about this one. Um, there's just these two kick-ass Pacific Rim-looking girls on the cover with their helmets and, and armor. Yeah. Um, I honestly don't even know that much about what it's about, but it's by her, so I'm really excited.
0: (laughs) And also, like, maybe it doesn't matter what it's about. You saw the cover and it gave you the feelings that you wanted to have. Exactly. And you're like, yes, this is Amoeba.
1: Yes. I'm going to clap my hands and it's going to be exciting. (laughs) That's all I need. (laughs) What about you? What covers are you you amped up about?
0: So I'm one that likes... I'm not a huge illustrated cover fan, and... um, I don't, they just don't do a whole lot for me. Um, they remind me of boring adult books, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate because they aren't, but that's just what they remind me of. And um, I say that as a way to say, like, two of the three that I want to talk about are super illustrated covers. Mm-hmm. Um, the first being The Price Guide to the Occult by Leslie Walton, mm-hmm. which is um, black with green leaves on it. It looks a lot like the hardcover for Fierce and Subtle Poison by Samantha Mabry. Oh, okay. Um, It's just like super appealing and it looks very much like a book about plants that are going to do awful things which I don't think that's what the book's about but I'm 100% in on the book by that cover alone um and then the other one that is illustrated that caught my attention is Ink by Alice Broadway and it, it kind of has the feel of Price Guide that I was just talking about it's a fully illustrated cover with swirls of burnt orange and feathers and in the corner there's a small girl like small size wise compared to the art looking up and it's one of those covers that like the design is so intricate and swirly and it, it's so pleasing to the eye to just like look around on the cover and see what you can see and what pops out and oh, it's just so visually appealing. I know nothing about the book except it has a beautiful cover and I want to know more about the book because of that beautiful mm. yeah and then the, the last one is that thing you were saying about like one iconic image sort of telling the story of the book and um this is the cheerleaders by kara thomas it's just a bloody cheerleader skirt cover. it's illustrated yeah um that tells me everything i need to know about the book yeah. and it tells me that it's gonna have like a megan abbott sort of vibe to it and i want that now um so if anybody can hook me up um <laughs> i lovingly pet the cover for a while and then also read it. Um, <laughs> but those are the three that have like really stood out to me um, so far this year. I, You know, I haven't spent as much time with YA yet for 2018 as I wish I had, but I think those are going to be a pretty good start.
1: Yes. Well, speaking of...
0: Uh, we, go ahead.
1: I was going to say, so well, speaking of 2018 and, uh, you know, good starts and all that, <laughs> um, you know, one thing... You know, I know you and I have been talking a lot about off off the podcast and, you know, on Twitter and whatnot is, uh, are these most anticipated lists that we mm-hmm. keep seeing? Uh, most anticipated 2018, you know, most anticipated YA, yada, yada. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of these lists end up having the, the same books on them again. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, you know, we might dig into this, uh, talk about these lists, what they're missing, and then maybe talk about books that we haven't seen on them, that, that should be on them. Um, it's so funny, because I feel like I'm kind of guilty of this. Like, I do these lists. I, I have one that I write for uh, for a media outlet, and, yeah, you know, I know. Some of the books on my list are the same as the others, and uh, I'm sorry. And here we go. Let's let's talk about this. Let's talk about this problem. So,
0: <laughs> <laughs> so why do you do it? Like, how, how do you pick your titles that you're most anticipating, and... Like, why is there so much crossover? As somebody who writes these lists, I want to know.
1: I don't know. You know, the, um, like, for me, a lot of the more, they are the books I'm genuinely the most excited about. Um, Like, there are a couple that were on my list that weren't on others, which I was somewhat happy about. Um, But you get limited. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of these lists, it's like, okay, pick your top ten. Oh, man. Like, how do you pick (laughs) ten when you know what, you know readers are kind of expecting, uh, to see on that list, Mm -hmm. uh, and balance that with what you feel, you know, should be on that list. It's kind of a hard thing to, uh, to juggle. So, uh, yeah, it's rough. You know, when you have, when you can only talk about 10 or only talk about 12, uh, when there's 30 books you might be psyched up about, uh, you kind of miss out on a lot of stuff.
0: I mean, this is, this is just the, the issue with lists in general is sort of, (laughs) <laughs> making your list so narrow that there's nothing that could be included that you missed or um, overlooked or didn't hear about is really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I get this for non-most anticipated lists. Like, I'll write a book list about some topic and it'll be a really niche topic and, you know, the comments are not like, this is a great list I've added such and such to my um, TBR and, and those comments happen but the more common comments are how come so-and-so is not on uh, yes. or how come this title is not on here and it's like, Because. (laughs) Because I missed it. Because I only have so much time in the world. Because everybody in the world knows about that book already. So there's no reason to like put it on another list. Um, You know? And so okay. I I give you that on the most anticipated list. But can I just say I dislike them a lot. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I feel like they they help readers find the same few books that come out in the first few months of the year. And that's really about it. Um, So those sort of Books which are quieter and aren't getting a lot of marketing, um, or books that haven't been announced yet, or books that are coming out in the second half of the year are just sort of out of luck. Um, Yeah. You know, there there are times when people revisit these lists, like, halfway through the year, but still, like... Oh man, don't ever be a December novel writer because Oof. nobody's ever gonna talk about your book. You know? That's true. And yeah. Like and that's unfortunate.
1: Yeah, and sometimes I wonder if it's a, a book cover issue. You know, are media outlets more inclined to feature books on lists when they have those big clickable photos? Um, mm-hmm. you know, I get that marketing and publicity folks at publishing houses, you know, have plans for those books when they come out later in the year, you know, the cover reveals. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's a a surprise book reveal or a a title reveal. Mm -hmm. Um, but I wonder if doing those fun things costs books, this kind of early buzz in the beginning. Um, does it even matter? Like, I wonder how many people pre-order books that are hitting, uh, in October when they hear about them in January, you know, like I know I do because I have a problem. I do too. (laughs) But you know, not everyone, you know, not everyone is like, like us, I guess. Um, I don't know. Yeah,
0: that's true. I mean, yeah, that's that's true, and that we're in a sort of different <laughs> different world because I am a person who likes to know about books. That I'm really excited about coming out in October or November, and um, even if I if I'm not talking about them in January, it's like I'm making notes to myself to like tuck that away for talking about when it gets closer yeah. or um, when it's convenient. But you know, most people don't operate <laughs> under like deadlines and timelines and. Um, So that's, that's a good question too. I don't know, but if you're seeing the same six books on every list, like how beneficial is that to people? Mm. Um, you know, (laughs) are they going to burn out on those books by the time June or July rolls around because that's all they've seen or, um, you know, does it, does it help them a lot by giving them that sort of screen time? I don't know. I don't know if there's an answer.
1: Yeah. Well, what are some books that are... I feel
0: like that's the theme of our podcast. (laughs) I don't know if there's an answer.
1: (laughs) Well, what were some books that are on your list? Like, what are what are books that you have seen missing that you think uh, people should be talking about?
0: All right. I'm going to blow through this. Yes. You ready? I made a list. I'm ready. For my list. And I'm just going to keep it short and sweet. So, um, some of the ones on my list are Anger is a Gift by Marco Shiro, which is about police violence and discrimination set in Oakland with a queer Latino main character. Ooh. The, and that one, uh, I think it's May is when that one comes out. The Apocalypse of Elena Mendoza by Sean David Hutchinson, which is about a queer girl who's the product of a virgin birth. And my note to myself is, what? <laughs> like, that sounds amazing. Um, Stay Sweet by Siobhan Vivian, which is about teen girls who are working at um, what's sort of been a local legend of an ice cream shop. And news breaks that it might be shutting down at the end of the season. So it's about summer and, you know, like local local legends and history. Mm. Um Lizzie by Don Ayas, which is a queer take on the Lizzie Borden story. I mean, I need that now. (laughs) Yes. I haven't heard
1: anything about that. I need to, I'm going to look that up immediately.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Bookish Boyfriends by Tiffany Schmidt, which explores this idea of what if a teen's literary superheroes, you know, book boyfriends suddenly showed up in her real life? Are they as good as they are on paper? Like, the premise is brilliant. Um, Never Wake... Never World Wake by Marisha Pessl. I have to say I don't know much about this book at all, but Pessl has written a number of really popular adult fiction books. So she wrote Night Film and Special Topics in Calamity Physics, both of which um, did really well yeah. and got a lot of acclaim. So I'm dying to know how she takes on YA why, why science fiction. Because um, I feel like her other books could have easily gone like that crossover area. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah.
0: Um, few more because that wasn't enough um winter folk by janelle colby which is about a homeless teen who finds that her homeless camp is being cleared by the city and she's trying to figure out where she'll go from there our stories ourselves growing up female in america which is an anthology edited by amy reed which is essays on feminism politics and being a woman in modern america yeah Stormwick by lucy lucy christopher which is a retelling of the tempest Phoebe Will Destroy You by Blake Nelson. And I think Blake Nelson writes some of the best teenage voices in YA. And he is so criminally underrated for what he's doing with voice. Um, I'm really excited to read his next one. And then the last one on this list is Fum by Adam Rapp, who I keep confusing with Anthony Rapp, the actor. And for good reason. After all this confusion about the two names, it's because they're brothers. So they're related. Um, which made me feel a little less bad about getting them confused all the time. Um, But this book is about a giant, (laughs) so I need to read it. (laughs) Like That's all you need to know about it. It's about a giant. Um, And then some books that are coming out this fall, maybe. Um, Some for sure, some maybe, because, again, so early they haven't been formally announced yet, or um, sometimes books at the end of the year end up becoming early books the next year, but... We should see titles from Novarun Suma, from Courtney Summers, from Amy Lukovics, Stacy Lee, and Daniel Gross.
1: Uh, see, that's what I mean, though. Like, I want to know. <laughs> I want to know, right? so I'd be freaking out about them. Um, yeah.
0: What about you? What's on your list?
1: Uh, so mine's a little smaller. Um, so I'm really psyched <laughs> for uh, "Test of the Road by Rachel Hartman. Um, I'm, like, shocked that the next book from the person who wrote Serafina isn't getting way more buzz.
0: I agree. I agree. Yeah.
1: Um, and from what I gather, like, I have a copy of it right here. This also takes place in that, uh, sort of Serafina world. Um, so there's dragons and all that that fun stuff again, and a girl setting off on the road <laughs> to avoid uh, getting thrown in a nunnery. Um, Heart of Ash, which I talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, The Midnights by Sarah Nicole Samata, which I talked about in a past episode. Um, and this, this sort of leads me into something interesting on the, on the off uh, topic, though. Like, like I feel like every year there's, like, a book that I'm like, okay, I'm going to die on this hill talking about this book. <laughs> um, for me, last year, it was... Um, what was the book? Uh, last Seen Leaving by Caleb Roeg. I was all about that. I was talk- making everyone read it. Um Actually, that was a year before. Last year, it was Starfish by Kimi Bowman. I couldn't stop mm-hmm. talking about that one. Year before, it was Caleb. I story. was
0: going to tell you that that was what the one was. Yeah. Last year. and I'm laughing. <laughs> See, be- you know, I'm laughing because <laughs> the note in our show notes is joke about the hill I'll die on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so every year I have a book like that, and I feel like this is might be that book for me. Um, what else what else is coming out uh, Oh Undead Girl Gang by Lily Anderson uh, we were talking about amazing covers earlier and I didn't I forgot to talk yes. about that one it has like these really cool enamel pins on the cover uh, of, like a jean jacket looking thing um, mm-hmm. and then uh, this tiny perfect world by Lauren Garbaldi um, those are all very much on my I wish they were on more uh, you know most anticipated lists even though I write most anticipated lists so I am the problem. <laughs> Um, but these books are great and everyone should keep an eye out for them.
0: I feel like this entire episode could be called, we're going to tell you about hundreds of books that you're going to want to read right <laughs> now and then you're going to hate us because you don't have the time to read them. That's true. <laughs> right? That's
1: true. Well, it's okay. We talked about oh, books man. that aren't out yet and then we talked about books that came out <laughs> 10 years ago. So it's a, it's a good mix.
0: Exactly. We gave people something to read while they're waiting for the ones that are, you know, yeah. to come out soon. There we go. So... We're doing our job. We're doing our job. Talk about the front list, talk about the back list, and then talk about book covers. We're good. We're good. <laughs> um, so thank you everybody for tuning in this week. Please leave feedback about the show on Apple Podcasts to let us know how we're doing and to help others find us. Thanks again to today's sponsors for helping make the show possible. You can follow me, Kelly Jensen, on Twitter and Instagram as Veronica Kelly Mars, and you can follow Eric Smith on Twitter and Instagram as Eric Smith Rocks. We'll talk to you again in two weeks.
1: Bye. Um.